0: Then Allah says, Today, this day, all good things are made permissible for you. Which day? The day when this ayah was revealed. When the deen was perfected. On the day of Arafah, at Hajj. So all good things are made permissible for you. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also makes clear that Ta'amu and food of الَّذِينَ أُودُوا Kitab, Those people who were given the book, حِلُّ That is also permissible for you. So two things are permissible here. What? First of all, all good things. And secondly, the food of the people of the book is also permissible for you. Which food is this? It doesn't refer to every kind of food. Because water is also food, right? And if a mushrik gives you water, can you not have it? Of course you can. If a mushrik gives you an apple, can you not have that? Of course you can. So which food is a problem? Which food is... It's meat. Okay? So meat is being spoken of over here. So what this ayah means is that the meat of the people of the book, even that is permissible for you to eat. Meaning the meat that they eat, the animals that they slaughter, you can also eat of that. Now, this has been interpreted in two ways. Some scholars have said that any meat that they offer, whether they have mentioned Allah's name on it or not. Okay? Okay? And the other scholars say that, no, it has to be that meat on which the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was mentioned. Because the thing is that if you take any meat, that the Christians also eat pork. Can you have that? No, you can't. You can't do that. They commit shirk. They could even mention Isa name on it. If you can't eat meat, an animal on which Muhammad ﷺ's name was mentioned, then you can't even eat that animal on which Isa name was mentioned. She said that back home, there are Christians who live in her country, and when they slaughter, they literally, they mention the name of Isa of the Holy Spirit, of Thalatha, of the Trinity. Right? So the food of the people of the book is also permissible for you. وَطَعَامُكُمْ حِلُّ And your food is also permissible for them. Meaning, you are also allowed to offer your meat to them. Okay? Now what does this mean? That your meat and their meat is very similar. The way you slaughter and the way they slaughter is very similar. This is why it's okay for you to eat theirs, and it's okay for them to eat yours. Okay? Because the method of slaughtering is very very similar. I'm not talking about how the Christians slaughter now, because their deen is very, very different from how it was before. Okay, Basically, if you look at the Jewish way of slaughtering animals, it is very, very similar. It's almost identical. In fact, it is more strict. They use a knife that is much sharper. And they have to slaughter it in one go. It has to be very, very swift. Okay, And likewise, The blood has to be completely drained of the animal. They're more strict. So this is why Allah says that you can eat theirs and they can eat yours. You can eat theirs and they can eat yours. Now there is a number of things that inshallah we will discuss under this. First thing I want you to be clear about is that so far what we have learned about halal meat is that meat becomes halal when first of all the slaughterer, the hunter is who? A Muslim or a kitabi. Kitabi meaning someone from the people of the book. A Jew or a Christian. Whereas if a mushrik, if an atheist was to slaughter an animal, then that meat is not permissible for you. Okay? So the first thing is that the slaughterer, the hunter has to be a Muslim or a kitabi. What's the evidence of this? Because obviously if Allah is saying that you can eat their meat, that means what they have slaughtered. Okay? So that's the evidence. The second condition is that at the time of slaughter, at the time of hunting, the name of Allah has to be mentioned. What's the evidence of that? So many verses. Just now we learned what Kurusmallahu alayhi. In Al-An'am we learned don't eat of that on which Allah's name is not mentioned. Okay? So the name of Allah has to be pronounced. And there's many ahadith also that mention the same thing. The third condition is that the cat has to be done. What is that? That the blood has to be drained completely which means that the animal must be slaughtered in such a way that the jugular vein gets cut, instant death, and the most effective way of draining the blood. The maximum amount of blood is drained from the body. If these three conditions are met, then you can eat of that meat. That meat is permissible for you to consume. Now, when it comes to Jewish way of slaughtering, according to their law. And this is basically known as shokhat. So, the shokhat, the slaughterer, when he slaughters the animal, then, like I mentioned, he has to use a particular kind of a knife, he has to cut in a particular way, and it has to be a person who's had years of training, experience, someone who is known for his good conduct in the community, not an ordinary person can slaughter. And when they slaughter, remember that it is not considered an essential requirement for them to mention God's name, but they always do anyway. Sheikh Yasir Qadhi, he's written a whole paper on this, you can find it on Muslim Matters. He writes that halakhic law states that the shokhut should verbally bless the act of slaughter with a specific blessing. While this blessing is not considered an essential requirement, in practice it is always done. And it is realistically inconceivable that a intentionally abandons this blessing. Meaning he would always mention it. What is that statement? What are those words of blessing that they mention? The formulation of this blessing translates as, Blessed are you, God, our God, Lord of the world, who sanctified us through His commandments and instructed us concerning proper animal slaughter. Is there any shirk in this? Is there any shirk in this? No, there is no shirk. Whose name is being invoked? Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's name is being mentioned. The only thing is that when they slaughter, so for example, they have 50 animals to slaughter, they will say this blessing only once at the beginning. They will not say it for every single animal that they slaughter. This is the only difference. Now, some Muslim scholars, they consider that for every animal, you have to pronounce Bismillah. And other scholars say that no, it's not a requirement. If you have 50 to 100 animals to slaughter, and when you're saying Bismillah at the beginning, you have the intention for all the animals, then you don't have to repeat every time. This is just like you have a plate of food before you, and you say Bismillah before you eat. Which means that everything that you put in your mouth thereafter, that bismillah applies to every single morsel, every single bite. You're not required to say bismillah for every bite that you take. So this is why some scholars said that it is not necessary that you say bismillah every time you slaughter the animal. If you said it once, it is sufficient. As long as your niyyah at that time was to slaughter all those animals. And if there is a person who regularly says it, he knows you're supposed to say it. And if they forget, is it possible to forget? Tell me, aren't we human beings? Yes, it is very much possible to forget. So, for example, a person is going to start slaughtering the animals, and he usually says, Bismillah, he knows you're supposed to say it, but he forgets. And as soon as he passes the knife, he says, Oh, I didn't say Bismillah. So, does it mean you can't eat of that animal? You can. Why? Because this was Nisiyan. And we make dua, رَبَّنَا لَا تُؤَخِذْنَا in نَسِيْنَا أَوْ أَخْطَأْنَا In the hadith, we learned that Nisiyan, forgetfulness, is something that this ummah is forgiven for. So as long as the person habitually, regularly says Bismillah, once or twice he accidentally forgets, then it's not a problem. So when it comes to kosher meat, what do we learn? That you may eat it. Because there's no shikh, all the conditions are met. But remember, that just because you go to a Jewish restaurant, it doesn't mean that it will be kosher. Make sure that you find out that it is kosher certified. Someone once told us about this deli meat place, and we're so happy that, oh, it's kosher, kosher, kosher. And we found out that their meat is not blessed, meaning it's not actually kosher meat. It's just standard. Whatever they get, it's just kosher style, but not slaughtered in the kosher way. So therefore, it's very important that we are careful. Now, kosher clear. What about Christians? And what about the land of the people of the book? Like for example, we're living in Canada. And this is what many Muslims argue. That, well, this is the land of the people of the book, so the meat that is available here is the meat of the people of the book, so you can eat anything. Now tell me something. Is everyone in this country, besides Muslims, is everyone Christian or Jewish? No, they're not. There's a large percentage of non-Christian and Jewish people in this country. And in every Western country. Whether they are mushrik, or they're atheist, or they're something else. There's a large percentage of them. And when they're slaughtering the animals, they're working in slaughterhouses, tell me, are they all Christian? Are they all Jewish? No, not necessarily. They could be people of different faiths. And we know that the correct method is not applied when it comes to slaughtering the animals. Except for just a few places. Like we learned that the cat is not done, the blood is not drained completely. Likewise, the animal could be dead as well. It may not be an animal that was alive when it was slaughtered. So in that case, what should be done? It is said that if the region where the meat mentioned is found has only people of the book, namely Jews and Christians, then their meat is halal. Even if it is not known how they slaughtered it. So you don't know how they slaughter, you come to a place that's all Jews, all Christians. Like for example, there are these Christian communities spread all over North America, Mennonite communities. You know about them? That how they raise their own animals, they slaughter them themselves. And men even have beards. Women wear scarves. They wear long dresses. Fornication is something that's not allowed. I mean, they have their own practices. Now, they're Christians. You don't know how they slaughter their meat. If you happen to go there and you eat their meat, there is no harm. If you don't know how they slaughter. But if you know how they slaughter and they mention Isa s name, for instance, then you can't eat it. Likewise, you go to a friend's house and she's Jewish. And she offers you meat. And you know that she is proper about her religion. She follows her religion. Then in that case, can you eat the meat? Yes, you can. The point is that you don't have to ask and investigate. This is just like when you meet a Muslim, when you go to a Muslim's house, they give you meat. Do you not eat it? Do you ask them which which shop did you buy it from? Was Bismillah pronounced on it? Is it from Maple Lodge or is it from this or is it from this? If you start asking those questions, it is wrong you should not interrogate the person who is serving you meat unless there is a strong reason for you to do so. And it is said that if there are other disbelievers in the region, then do not eat it because that means there is doubt as to whether it is halal or haram. Similarly, if you know that those who sell these meats slaughter the animals in a way that is different from the shari'i method, such as strangling or electric shock, then do not eat it. Whether the one who slaughtered it is a Muslim or a kafir. So tell me something, if a Muslim offers you meat and you know that it's not halal, will you eat it? No. So likewise, if a Christian or a Jew offers you meat and you know it's not halal, then how can you eat it then? If from a Muslim you can only accept halal, then from a kitabi also you can only accept that which meets the requirements that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given. Is it clear? So you can eat their meat, and they can eat your meat as well. Why? Because you slaughter animals in a very similar way. Okay, you have the benefit of the doubt. Meaning that if you don't know how exactly they slaughter, you can trust them that they... Slaughter correctly, properly, and you can eat from them. But if you have a strong reason to believe that they don't slaughter properly, like for example, you go to a fast food restaurant here, you have a strong reason to believe they don't slaughter properly. But if you go to a Mennonite community, if you go to a hardcore Jewish restaurant, then you have a reason to believe that their meat is okay for you to eat. You don't have to go ask them. So for example, you go to a Muslim's house and you know that there are some people who are Muslim and they eat meat that is not zabiha. So in that case, should you ask them or should you not ask them, directly or indirectly? It's better you don't ask. Why? Because Aisha Anha, when she asked the Prophet s.a.w, there are people who bring meat to us, we don't know if it's halal or not, if they have slaughtered the animal properly or not, so what should we do? What did he say? Just say, Bismillah and eat it. If a Muslim gives you meat, then trust them. But if you see them slaughtering incorrectly, you see them, then you can't do that. You have to go and tell them what they did was wrong. You have to educate them. Likewise, if you know that Christians today don't slaughter properly, then don't eat their meat because you have ilm of their khata. If the food is halal, but let's say the packaging may have some a Jewish symbol on it or a Christian symbol on it, then in that case can you eat it? Yes you can because Ta'amuhum Unless it is a part of their religious ritual, dedicated, offered to Isa or Zakaria alayhi or whoever then in that case you don't. The question is that sometimes you know you're buying meat and it says halal They say that it's halal, so you buy it from them. And then later on somebody comes and tells you, by the way, they're not actually halal. They don't slaughter their meat properly, and this is the reason, and this is the reason, and this is the reason. So should you go and investigate and research and find out, or should you just just accept their word for it? Meaning accept the butcher's word for it. The thing is that you should accept the butcher's word for it. If they're saying it's halal, trust them. Okay, if they're saying certified halal, certified halal by someone, by some fiqh council, by some Muslim authority, by some knowledgeable Muslim person, so in that case you will accept it. But if there is one complaint after the other, and people want to know how their meat is slaughtered, where their meat is coming from, then you will have the full right to investigate Provided that you can. If you can investigate, then go ahead and do it. But if you can't, and you're just talking about it, spreading confusion amongst people, then don't do that. So either go find out, investigate, and if you don't have the ability to do that, then just be quiet. Don't just talk. Because unfortunately what we do is we just talk, and we spread rumors, and we spread confusion, and chaos like this, so that people are never sure about what they're eating. At one point they will eat it, at another point they won't eat it. So, first of all, trust the Muslim who is giving you meat. Secondly, if you have a strong reason to believe that no, their meat is not halal, then in that case you investigate when you can. And if you can't do it, then stop talking about it. Don't eat from there when you don't feel comfortable. But at the same time, don't make other people just a subject of your conversation all the time.
1: What if you go to a fast food restaurant like Pizza Pizza and they say they have halal food but they also sell
0: non-halal stuff. So what do you do then? Do you like? Of course, you can eat the separate? halal. I mean, if they're saying it's halal, uh, if you go to Licks burger and they say they have halal burgers, enjoy them. Honestly, why? If they have said it's halal, they have separate pans, separate everything for it. Why not? This is just like you go to a grocery store, you find halal meat section and haram meat section. What do you do? You pick it from the Halal meat section. So, first of all, their meat is halal. Secondly, Allah says, وَالْمُحْصَنَاتُ minal After food, marriage. So, minal mu'minat, Meaning, lawful for you in marriage. Or who? muhsanat, chaste women. We have done this word earlier. And muhsanat gives meaning of chaste as well. So, chaste women from among who? Minal mu'minat From the believing women. Meaning, you can marry... Chaste believing women. What does this indicate? That men are encouraged to marry chaste believing women. Decent believing women. Women who protect themselves, who guard their chastity. Who are not unchaste. How do you define chaste and unchaste? Who is a chaste woman? Someone who just covers herself. Okay, that is part of it. Because that is part of hayat, that is part of chastity, to be dressed in a modest way. Okay, that's one thing. Secondly, someone who has like 50 guy friends and she just chats with them and talks with them and hangs out with them and brother, sister, you know. Is that considered chastity? Is that considered decency? No, it's not. How is it possible that a Muslimah can have So many friends who are non mahram to her, and she talks to them, she jokes with them, she hangs out with them, she goes out to eat with them, she sits with them whenever she's free, and she cries with them, she laughs with them. This is not decency, my dear sisters. This is not chastity. A chaste woman is someone who protects herself from the men. And you may have a friend who is a guy, and... He may never express that he likes you or he loves you. But you know what? He's a man. And it's not possible that a man sees a woman and he doesn't find her attractive. There will be some attraction that he will find in her. So, min al-mu'minat, Which women are Muslim men encouraged to marry? Women who are chaste. But unfortunately, it's, sad that girls haven't even reached puberty and they're asked, do you like somebody? Do you like somebody? And girls are always talking about, oh I have a crush on this guy and I like this man, he's so cute and he's like this. And this is the reason why girls dress up in a way that is immodest, as though attracting men towards them. What do you want to achieve by dressing up in that way? By walking in front of men in that way? By talking to them in that way? I'm not saying don't talk to them, don't go before them, don't interact with them. That's impossible. You have to interact. You have to live with them. But there is one way which is acceptable and another way which is not acceptable. So check yourself. The men that I know who are non-mahram, whether they are relatives or not, whether I go to school with them or I work with them, I once knew them, how do I interact with them? How free am I with them? How comfortable am I with them? Because the more comfortable you are, the more free you become with them, there's more chances of crossing the limits that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set. More chances. So be careful. Always maintain a professional distance. And what does it mean by that? That first of all, in the physical sense, there should be a distance. I remember uh, sister-in-law shared with me that when she was in school, her mother taught her that any boy in your class has to be an arm's length away from you. Physically, an arm's length away from you. If you have to sit next to a guy, make sure there's an arm's length distance between you and him. So first of all, a physical distance. And secondly, a professional distance as well. In the way that you speak, in the way that you interact with them, in the way that you work with them. This is very important. Because otherwise, the limits that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set, they get crossed, they get violated, and as a result, we put ourselves in difficulty. Women put themselves in difficulty. So many times it happens that they get married eventually, and then what happens? Their husband finds out about some boy whom they had a crush years ago, whom they liked years ago, whom they exchanged funny emails with a few years ago. And then their husband doesn't want to trust them. Tell me, tell me yourself, would you like a husband who's had an affair with someone? Would you ever want a husband who had a girlfriend? Would you ever want a husband who has many girls whom he likes and there are many girls who like him? If you don't want that in your husband, don't make yourself a wife for another husband who's like that. Because no husband wants such a wife either. If you want a pure husband, be a pure woman yourself as well. Be a pure girl yourself as well.
2: Here we are at the um, Utah State University Library for some interviewing to ask people if they believe that men and women can be just friends. Um, So let's go inside and see what we can find. Do you believe that men and women can be just friends?
1: Yes. Yeah, of course. Yes, I do. Yeah.
2: Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think... (laughs) <laughs> It'd be hard to do Yes I mean we're all men I know. So of course we're going to have those feelings And we can We can be content with just friendship But And we can be silent regarding those feelings But we're going to have them Yes mm, <laughs> Nope no,
0: no
1: Yes Yes
0: Yes I, I don't believe so. No.
2: I guess what I'm saying is no. Okay, good. <laughs> I can't grow and okay. okay, we'll walk with you. Do you believe men and women can be just friends?
1: Um, yeah. Yes. Yes.
2: Yeah. Okay, do you have any guy friends right now who you're just friends with?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, all my best friends are guys. Dave. Trevor. Trevor. Taylor Mulford. Bobby. Yeah.
2: How long have you known Trevor? Two years. Of those guy friends... Do you think any of them secretly like you? And be honest.
1: Probably, yeah.
2: Do you think that guy is interested in you?
1: Yes. (laughs) Okay, maybe you can only be just friends in high school, because most guys won't just be my friend.
2: Would Dave hook up with you if if you gave him the chance? Well, yeah. Do you think Trevor liked you?
1: Yeah, I (laughs) (laughs) know I (laughs) did.
2: Would he hook up with you if you wanted to hook up? So he mm-hmm. likes you? hmm So what you're saying is men and women can't be friends?
1: No, we can be friends.
2: But you're just friends, but he likes you? Yes. So it's a one-sided friendship? That was one instance. If she wanted to hook up, would you hook up? Oh, totally. Okay. Look at her. Don't be sarcastic. I need the truth. Seriously, yeah. Alright, there we go. Alright, that's perfect. Okay, cut, cut. Because of physical attraction, it's not possible. Oh, okay. But you said, I just want to be just friends. Now, do you literally believe that he is not interested in you at all? (laughs) Oh, yes! Yes! That's what I'm talking about! As we can see, um, after interviewing everyone in the library, um, it is impossible for men and women to be yes friends. (laughs) And under no circumstances can it happen. Um, That's a wrap.
0: I don't have to say anything. Chaste women from the believing women. With your Iman, the only thing that befits you is chastity, decency. And the chaste women from those people who were given the book before you, meaning you are also allowed to marry them. A Muslim man is supposed to marry who? A chaste woman, a decent woman, someone who guards her chastity, who doesn't have guy friends, who doesn't have illicit relationships with others. No, she is someone who guards her private parts, her honor, her chastity. And she could be a believing woman, a Muslim woman, and she could also be a kitabi woman. What does it mean by kitabi woman? Someone from the people of the book, Jewish or Christian. But there is a condition. When you marry women, إِذَا You have to give them their ujur. Ujur is a plural of ajr. And what does it refer to? Their mahr. At the time of marriage, a man is obligated to give the mahr to the woman. So whether he is marrying a Muslim woman or a Christian woman or a Jewish woman, it doesn't matter. He has to give her the mahr. Why? Because this is what Islamic law demands of him. Now think about it. When a man will marry a Christian woman, it will not be according to Christian law. It will be according to Islamic law. Which means that nikah has to be conducted, the witnesses have to be there, the wali has to be there, and the mahr has to be given. So when this is the case with marriage, the same thing applies to food. That when you will eat their food, it has to meet the requirements of Islamic law. So, إِذَا آتَيْتُمُهُنَّ أُجُورَهُنَّ And once you marry them, مُحْسِنِينَ Ones who fortify themselves in marriage. Meaning the men, when they marry the women, they must fortify themselves in marriage. In other words, they live with them only with nikah. They don't just cohabit with them, they don't just live with them without any nikah, no. If they have relationships with them, they live with these women, they have to have nikah. Muhsineen. Ghayra musafihin. Not musafihin. Musafihin, plural of musafih. And we have read all these words earlier in Surah Nisa. What does sifah mean? Zina. So, not living with them just to fulfill your physical desire, no not committing zina with the women, rather you have to marry them. There has to be nikah. وَلَا مُتَّخِذِي أَخْدَان Nor should you be taking secret friends. متَّخِذِي plural of متخذ, One who takes, one who makes. أَخْدَان plural of خدن, And who is that? A secret lover. A person whom you don't tell other people about, but you love them, they love you, and there is also physical relationship between the two. So don't take them as secret girlfriends, as secret boyfriends, no. This is only possible with nikah. Now, over here we see that the Muslim men have been allowed to marry Christian or Jewish women. Not that a Muslim woman is allowed to marry a Christian man or a Jewish man. This must be very clear to us. Why? Isn't this unfair? A lot of the time um, the man is in control. So if the woman tries to persuade him into changing his religion, he's probably most likely going to be firm on that. But the woman is kind of um, less compared to the man. So she's probably going to be easily Um, Forced Convinced Yeah, convinced to change her religion Okay, that's a reason But sometimes Men get easily convinced by their wives as well Right? Like for example If a woman has made up her mind That she wants to move to a different country Then she can convince her husband sometimes Isn't it possible? Right? Because strong men They become weak and helpless before their wives She cries just once And all his ego disappears she sheds tears a few times and that's it, he will surrender. Basically, we see that typically, generally, in a relationship, who is more dominant? Typically, I'm not talking about just Muslims, I'm talking about others as well. Generally, the more dominant one is the man. And even if the woman is dominant in another respect, usually the final say is with who? The man. And physically, who's stronger? The man is. Generally, who's making financial decisions? The man is. And in our deen, the men are who? qawwam Which means that a good wife should be obedient to her husband. Now, if a Muslim woman is a good wife and her husband happens to be a Christian, and he says, we have to celebrate Christmas. We have to do things this way. We have to do things this way. Then what is she doing? She's disobeying her husband on one hand, or she will be disobeying Allah. Do you see what I mean? She's always in the confusion. Either she's disobeying Allah, or she's disobeying her husband. In both cases, she's in trouble. She shouldn't disobey her husband, she shouldn't disobey Allah. Okay? So it is difficult for a woman to be in a position such as that. Also we see that the man is the qawwam. When he is the qawwam, he's supposed to lead the family. And when he's leading the family, he's making the decisions. So when he's making the decisions, the wife has to comply. And there may be decisions which are un-Islamic, that are not according to Islamic law. So in that case, she will compromise a lot when it comes to her deen. There is a lot of compromise. Too much of a compromise. So she will either lose her deen, or she will lose her husband so this is the hikmah basically why a woman has not been allowed to marry a non-muslim however at the end of the day for us is sufficient that Allah has not given that permission. when Allah has not given us that permission then Samnah we hear and we obey. children who are born out of a marriage then whose descendants are they of the father? So the father has to be a Muslim so that those children who are born, they are also Muslim, meaning they have Muslim lineage. And on the other hand, if a mother is a Muslim and the father is not, then in that case, the children, they don't belong to the Muslim community unless they become Muslim themselves. Allah says, وَمَنْ يَكْفُرْ iman," And whoever disbelieves with Iman, meaning, he says he's a believer, but at the same time he commits actions of kufr. He does what disbelievers do. He eats what they eat. He marries the way they marry. He lives the way they live. Then his deeds are wasted. And he is in the hereafter of the losers. He's of the losers in the hereafter. Now, this part of the ayah is very serious. It basically guides us with regards to everything that we have learned so far pertaining to halal and haram. That it seems difficult sometimes to follow these commands, to observe them. But remember that this is part of iman. If we say we're a Muslim, we have to live like a Muslim, we have to eat like a Muslim, drink like a Muslim, marry like a Muslim. You can't mix these two things up, iman and kufr. They don't come together. They don't stay together. They don't blend together. They cannot coexist in a person. If a person says he's a believer, he does the actions of kufr, his good deeds are useless. They'll be nullified. Because he will have accumulated so many sins that his good deeds will be wiped out. Don't we learn about a person who consumes haram? His body is nourished on haram food. And when he lifts up his hand to pray to Allah, then how will his dua be accepted? When his clothes are from haram and his body is made of haram. How? So, he who does the actions of kufr, his good deeds are wasted, and such a person in the hereafter is of the losers. It may seem that if we are living Islamically, according to Islamic laws, and we are losing out on the fun, on the enjoyment, but remind yourself that the greater loss is which one? Not of this world, but of the hereafter. Because every loss of this world can be replaced by something else, by something better. But the loss of the hereafter, the failure of the hereafter is final. Nothing, nothing you can do after that can make up for it.
1: (laughs) Al-Yawmah uhill lakum ut-tayyibat wa ta'amul ladheena utul kitab hillun lakum wa ta'amukum hillun lahum والمحصنات من المؤمنات والمحصنات من الذين اوتوا الكتاب من قبلكم والمحصنات من الذين اوتوا الكتاب من قبلكم اذا اتيتموهن اجورهم محصنين محصنين غير مسافحين ولا متخذين أخدان ومن يكفر بالايمان فقد حبط عمله وهو في الاخره من
0: الخاسرين